Our scripture reading today is going to be from 2 Peter 3, 1 through 13. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of, in both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by the way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last day with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Laurel. Do you feel the world is broken? Uh, the shadows deepening, the darkness is growing. Do you feel the world groaning under the injustices that just keep piling up? I, I have been this week as we've been planning this service and thinking about where we are in the creed. If you're visiting with us or you're a guest with us today, we're, we're walking through each uh, line of the creed and Today we're thinking about the second coming of Christ and thinking about that has me thinking about all the injustices that have been piling up, that they've just been piling up for thousands of years, you know, and maybe they've even been piling up in your life. Just injustices are everywhere. It's just struck me this week. So probably within, uh, within walking distance of this church, there's a wife who's afraid to go home at night at the end of the day. She doesn't know whether her husband is going to get drunk and hit her this time like he did last time and whether or not she'll be able to cover the bruise or she should go ahead and file for divorce. There's injustices happening all over the place around here. This year on our upward team, I met a boy uh, on our upward team and man, it just stopped me in our tracks throughout the season as we got to know each other. I found out that he He's never met his dad. He's 10 years old, and he's never met his father. You know, he's never had a father hold him up to the basketball hoop and get one in. Never seen his dad smile at him. That's a tragic injustice. Don't you think? 
Injustices are everywhere around us. Probably as a society, the thing that's most unjust or unjust societally, societally right now would be, would be racism, I think, personally. And I don't just mean the black and white divide. I mean anybody who's not an Anglo, they feel it in a way that if you're white, you do not feel it. Indian families, Asian families, Latino families, African-American families, they feel it. You say, man, I'm not, a, I'm not racism. I'm not a, I don't believe in racism. I'm not a racist. I'm not prejudiced. It is one of the blinding aspects of the human condition to think that you know what you are. You are probably more prejudiced than you think. I know I am. I mean, we're, we're just deceived about who we are. What I'm trying to say is injustice is piling up all around us, and it's kind of depressing. As John said a moment ago, you could could just say, hey, look, maybe we should throw our hands up and say fatalism is right, nihilism is right after all. Maybe Nietzsche was on to something. Maybe Christianity is not so... Is Christianity misleading? Is life ultimately meaningless and without purpose? Should we just throw up our hands and say, you know what, who cares? The prophets of the Old Testament and the apostles of the New Testament say, don't throw up your hands yet. Don't give up yet. Amos has this great line, and he says, I promise you, don't give up, I promise you the day of the Lord is coming. Listen, listen to this. The day of the Lord is coming, a day when justice will roll down like water and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. A day is coming when righteousness will cascade like water. Now, what I love about that image, and I think it's the reason Amos chooses this image, is that moving water, powerful moving water, uh, it, it does something to everything that it touches. I mean, moving water, uh, water that is, is cascading is... It's, this, it's a great leveler. It levels everything in its path. It moves dirt, moves trees, it polishes rocks, fills gaps. There's not a single place that you can keep, think about this, there's not a single place you can keep moving water from getting if you give it enough time. Like it, it's gonna have its effect. And so Amos says, there's coming a day there is coming a day when, the, when justice will roll down. Jesus Christ is coming to judge the living and the dead. And when he comes, it's going to be like cascades, like a flood of righteousness finding its way into every crack and crevice, moving things around and doing what it purposes. It's coming. As sure as a flood is coming. The justice of God, Amos says, is coming like a raging river of righteousness. And he will right every wrong. And this, by the way, is why you can forgive somebody who has not yet forgiven you. Romans 12. You can entrust forgiveness when it comes to personal injustice 
that's been perpetrated against you. You can forgive other people because of the sure and certain coming of Christ and his, and it's not that you would pray, oh God, with your vengeance, go get them, God, <laughs> fix them. Yeah, it's not, that's not the gospel prayer. So he will come again. And he's going to come and he's going to judge and he's going to right every wrong. And you can find hope in the great leveling righteousness of Jesus. So I want to talk through 2 Peter 3. I think it's a passage that will really help us to, to sort through this element of the creed and um, what we mean by he's coming, he's coming again to judge the living and the dead. Three, uh, three questions I want to answer this morning. Number one, how does it all fit together? Big picture. Secondly, why is it taking so long? It seems like it's taking forever. When will he come? And third, what kind of person should I be in the meantime? Like what, who should I personally be between now and then? Number one, how does, how does it all fit together? What's the big picture? That's what he's doing in verses one through seven. He's opening with the certainty of the day of the Lord. I want to stir you up and stir up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions, verse 2, of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. So Peter opens with the certainty of the day of the Lord. It's going to surely come, and, and certainty for him comes from God's word. Since God said it, he's going to make it happen, right? Right? He says, you need explicitly to remember the grand storyline of Scripture. So I want you to think back. And I think it's interesting. The, way, the reason he says a sincere mind, he doesn't mean moral sincerity here. When he, when he says sincere mind, he doesn't have in mind like, that you would ha have moral sincerity, more so that you would have a cohesive, holistic view of these things. So I want you to think reasonably about it. Uh, hold all your thoughts together you know, with integrity, how do you do that? You go to the Old Testament prophets and you listen to that in concert with Jesus' teaching, the commandment of our Lord Jesus, through the apostles. Because not everybody was saying the same thing about who Jesus was and what he was teaching. So you need to listen to the apostolic version of the gospel. So Paul says when you put those two things together, the Old Testament prophets who were pointing to Christ and Jesus' word himself and the right interpretation of that through the apostles, you will be remembering a cohesive view of the big picture of how this all fits together. Let me give you uh, an example uh, on the screen that might help so you can see the big picture. So over and over again in the Bible, you will see the movement from creation to fall to restoration. And that's exactly what Peter has in mind in verses one through seven. If you look closely at it again, you'll, you'll see that that the false teachers deliberately overlook verse five that God created the world by his word. Then he judged the world because of the fall. And then he restores by his word and by his promise. And that's what Peter's trying to, to, to kind of lay out as a big picture. Um, we, we could even say that you see little micro stories of this all throughout the big whole story of scripture. So, for example, back in Genesis, there's this great deluge and judgment and flood, but Noah finds grace, and he and his family are restored, and mankind gets another chance. 
And you see this over and over again throughout the whole storyline of Scripture. These little creation, fall, restoration moments throughout the whole Bible. Peter's point, I think, is big picture. This is where it's going in the end. This is the macro. It's not just little stories. This is the grand narrative of of Scripture. It's the macro storyline as well. And the creed reflects that. So if you, you just remember this, that part one God the Father Almighty creates. There's a white space between part one and part two. We said that's a dark space. That's actually the fall because the second part of the creed is salvation. So you have creation, salvation, which we're doing this. We're kind of finishing up part two on salvation today. And then the third part is what we might call restoration. How God is restoring the world through the church first and then in the end when he restores his kingdom ultimately. So the creed really lines up with the very storyline of the Bible, and that's one of the reasons we think it's so valuable to use it, to form our thinking, to train ourselves to think well about the gospel. Look at verse 10, a couple more, a couple more big picture ideas, still on point one. One day justice is coming. The day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. There's like this great moment of entropy or reversal, and everything is dissolved. You could think about it as a, in the end, like God is just putting the whole thing into a furnace and purifying it to remake it again. I don't think it's creation ex nihilo all over again. Like I don't think he's just, everything, everything ceases to exist and then he starts over. God is definitely powerful enough, you know, powerful enough to do that, but I don't, I don't think that's what Peter's describing. So one day justice is coming And the verse I wanted you to see, especially in verse 10, the the line in verse 10 is, everything done on the earth will be exposed. Exposure is a horrible feeling, especially if you're wrong. Exposure is a horrible place to be unless you have someone covering for you. And that's what a person who's trusted in Christ will have in the end not have to fear the ultimate judgment of God so one day justice is coming verse 10 and it's that you get this uh, kind of final big picture sense of it and you also get it again in verse 13 so what I'm saying is in verses 1 through 7 you get a big picture verse 10 fits right into that verse 13 you have the final end sort of in terms of the big picture Um, but according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. One day, final restoration is coming. One day, final judgment and justice is coming, verse 10. One day, final restoration and a new heavens and a new earth is coming, verse 13. So that's the big picture. I just want to lay that out. Uh, Now, now I'd like to drill down to a couple of areas that I think some of us are, are asking questions about. Number two. Why is it taking so long? This is the second question about his coming. Why is it taking so long? 
The false teachers uh, who have really occasioned why Peter is writing the way that he is, in fact, in chapter 2, just back up to chapter 2, he has a scathing word for the false teachers. Uh, he's like taking no prisoners in chapter 2. In, verse three, uh, in chapter 3, you don't get so much of that, but he's talking about the same people. The false teachers he's writing about have accused God in verse 4. So look at verse 4. I'm in chapter 3, verse 4. Look at verse 4. They've accused God of not intervening in his world. They, they, they will say, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the patriarchs died, all things are continuing as they were since creation. Like nothing's really changed. God seems distant, seems not powerful, seems removed. Verse 5, Peter says, oh no, you've overlooked, you have deliberately overlooked the fact that God created the world. He's already, he already judged the world early on through this flood of judgment and restored. And he will restore again. The final day of judgment is coming and so is restoration. So not only have they misread the Bible and misread the prophets and misread the teaching of Jesus, they've overlooked the grand storyline of Scripture, which relays this again and again. Not only have they done that, but they lack this, they lack a biblical sense. They lack a sense of how to read the Bible and how to know who God is. And, and what do I mean by that? Verse 8. Not only do they overlook what we just described, but they also overlook, verse 8, that time doesn't work the same way for God. With God, a day is like a thousand years. And a thousand years is like a day. He's quoting Psalm 90. He's quoting Psalm 90 and verse 4, which says, A thousand years in God's sight is like a day just gone by. Now think about this. Yesterday was Saturday. Some of you did some work outside. You've been, you were doing something. So yesterday, Saturday, yesterday's gone. What, what did you do yesterday? Right? Think back with me. What did you do yesterday? Um, at the house, uh, maybe you had a game or something you went to with the kids. Like, what, just, what did you do yesterday? Whatever you did yesterday, it's gone. You can't go get that back, right? It's gone. Yesterday just happened. Like, it just happened yesterday. I feel like I should sing yesterday. <laughs> I don't know why Don Prilliman reminded me of that. Um, now, now do this. Here, thought experiment. Stay with me. Yesterday, we just moved that to the side. Here's what God does. A thousand years. It's like gone. Because God doesn't process time the same way that you and I process time. And he's not saying, Peter's not saying, nor is Psalm 90 verse 4 saying, you should do the math, one day equals a thousand years just like one year equals you know, seven dog years or something like that. That's not what he means. What he's trying to do is draw out a simile, an analogy. Like a day is like 10,000 years. A day is like 100,000 years. He could have used any of those numbers. He's not, draw, he's not asking you to do strict math here. He's, he's drawing an analogy. He's saying, following Psalm 90 in verse 4, that that in contrast to the eternity of God, our lives are just like a moment, very brief. Our lives are short and frail compared to God the Father Almighty. 
our lives weaken. Our lives weaken with the passage of time. But God, mysteriously, being able to be in time and above time, it doesn't affect Him the same way it affects us. Think about this. Nothing about God diminishes over time. Nothing. His love and perfections, His holiness, His beauty, it doesn't diminish over time. It is perfectly sustained. What Peter's doing here is contrasting the patience of God with the impatience of short, frail human expectations. Why is it taking so long for Christ to return? Verse 9 gives two reasons. The first reason, so that you could personally discover repentance and grace. So that you personally will have time to turn to Christ. That is a grace from God. The reason it's taking so long is because we are taking so long to come to Christ. And I don't just mean by way of conversion, although I think Peter primarily has in mind throwing yourself on the mercy of Christ for the first time, believing He is the one who needs to save you and the only one who can save you and keep you. So that you may personally discover repentance and grace. But you know, we could quickly add here that not only do we discover that, but we, we need more time to figure it out. Man, we need more time. I, I need more time. Secondly, why is it taking so long? Because other people that you love and that God loves more than you, they need time. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise as some of you are counting slowness, but He's patient toward you. Aren't you thankful that the patience of God, aren't you thankful that the patience of God, that He, that, that he didn't close down the deal, that, it was still, that grace was still open until the day that you received it? Wishing that you would come to repentance. Yeah, Psalm 103 talks about how different God is from us with patience and with anger and how, how He can do things that are just, just amazing, that he, he grants this beautiful, long patience. He's slow to anger, right? Thank God He's slow to anger. Why is it taking so long for the return of Christ? Maybe your unbelieving neighbor needs to see the patience come alive in the gospel. Like maybe, maybe your coworker, maybe your coworker's waiting to hear you tell him about Jesus. Maybe your friend, or, or see you live compassionately for Christ. God is not willing that any should perish. Mark this, but that all should reach repentance. Quick note to self and word of pastoral application, give other people patience who are not where you are. You're probably not where you think you are either. 
right? Give each other patience. Like, it's what God does. Grant patience, grant patience and forbearance and long-suffering and kindness and grace and mercy to other people because God, in His mercy, was patient with you, bringing you to the place of saving grace. And He continues to be patient with you and I as we try to live the Christian life. So, I, in Peter's mind, one of the reasons it's taking so long is that it's actually not that long, <laughs> right? It's not that long. But also, so that the gospel will come alive and thrive and, and grace, repentance and grace can be extended to more and more people. Here's the third thing. What kind of per- so when when we talk about the last things and the end times and Jesus coming again, he's going to come again to judge the living and the dead. People immediately race forward to all the details. So I'm going to call a timeout on that and do what Peter's doing here and, and ask the question he's asking, which is in verse 11. All right. So that brings us to this incredibly important and practical question, verse 11. How then? What sort of people should we be? What kind of person should I be between now and then? How should I live? What should I be like between now and his coming? If you have not yet embraced the Christian faith, I think this is one of the many good reasons to consider Christianity. True Christianity will not only get you ready for the end, but true Christianity will make you a better person now. It really will make, and I'm not talking about a self-help seminar. I'm just talking about you'll be the kind of person people want to be around. People want to spend time with. People see as worthy of interest and imitation. And Christianity does that. Look, look at what Peter says in verse 11. What kind of people ought we to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Now, if you're a student of the scriptures and you have a pencil or whatever, you're marking things up, put those two things in a bracket. Put holiness and godliness together and bracket those and see them as a pairing because I think Peter's intentionally saying, okay, what should we be doing between now and then? Think this way with me, holiness and godliness. I want you to keep those things together. I think that's what Peter is after. Given that God is going to judge the whole world, given that no one will escape his scrutiny, given that the secrets of every heart will be exposed, how should we live? Holy and godly lives, keeping both of those on the table. Here's why this is so instructive. On the one hand, it speaks to those of you who are putting off obedience to Christ and his lordship. Now one day, one day maybe I'll, you know, one day maybe I'll get right. But look, one day maybe I'll get right with the Lord. But it's going to burn up in the end anyway. How? Do, why does it matter? You're telling me it's all going to burn up in the end anyway. So what? Why does it matter? Why do I need to be obedient to Jesus now? I should, you know, live how I want to live. To which Peter, I think, would say, "Don't miss this." 
It is the day of God that's coming. It is the day of God, he says in verse 12. It is the coming day of God. There is a reckoning coming. You don't want to bet against that. There's a reckoning coming. Something's going to happen at the end. So, on the one hand, I think it speaks to those of you who are putting off obedience to Christ in the sense of yielding your life to Him as Lord in every aspect of of your life. On the other hand, and I especially like this phrase for the church, for those who already consider themselves Christians. It hits really close to home for those of us who've been Christians for any length of time. And here's why I say this. Because holiness is often nothing more than self-righteousness. Happens all the time in church life. Holiness turns into self-righteousness. So we, in the name of God, we're quoting the Bible to one another and we're telling each other what to do. We're kind of like little tattletales running around my house pointing out the sins of the brothers and sisters. That is no fun for anybody little Pharisees, and so it's really easy as a Christian for any length of time to think your version of holiness equals the version of holiness that needs to be put on every single person in the, in the, in the community, in the body of Christ. That's not holiness. That's self-righteousness. That's legalism. That's imparting your expectations of how you have decided to live the Christian life on someone else. This is why holiness and godliness go together. Let me help you a little bit here. So there's two, there's a distinction between, these, these are not strict synonyms. So holiness means one thing, godliness means another thing. Holiness usually means distinction and separation. So we say God is holy, he's removed, he's far from us. Um, and even when he makes a people who are holy for himself, he's setting aside people out of the world to himself. So holiness almost always conveys separation and distinction. That's really important. And we should be a people pursuing holiness. Like Christians should not only be made holy and righteous in Jesus, and we are by faith pronounced holy and righteous, but we should also pursue holy and righteous living. Godliness... On, on the other hand, godliness is, so if holiness is about separation, godliness is about imitation. Um, holiness conveys separation, godliness conveys a sense of imitation. And living like Jesus lived, kind, kind and loving and patient, living a beautiful life. There's certainly a beauty in holiness as well but the two words like here's what i think peter's doing i think he's pairing holiness with godliness on purpose to help the church discover a beautiful gospel balance holiness without godliness usually ends up in legalism godliness without holiness seems shallow Maybe hallmarkish, you know, sentimental. But when you pair holiness and godliness together, man, what you get is this beautiful portrait of the gospel. And so he says, in the meantime, while you're waiting for this coming day, 
I want you to, don't, don't forget, don't forget, you gotta, do, you gotta do two things. At least two things you should be engaged in while you're waiting because the next phrase says waiting and hastening the coming day, right? So while you're waiting and even hastening somehow, your life somehow hastening the coming of Christ, while you're waiting, while you're hastening, be holy and godly. Keep them together. Keep holiness and godliness together. How should, how should we live with this beautiful gospel balance? You, listen, you should pursue holiness. You should memorize the word of God. You should, you should pray and fast. You should do things that set yourself, set your own life apart for God and, and say, God, I want to know you more. I want to be more pure and clean and right. You should pursue holiness, but be careful that you don't pursue holiness for other people. Because that's, that's when it gets really tricky. That's why godliness, that's why godliness is so important because you're watching Jesus, following Jesus, walking the way Jesus walked, living a life of godliness and imitation of, of gentleness and kindness and patience and long-suffering and forbearance that's far more attractive than telling everybody else, you know, how they need to conform to my standard. So Peter says, what kind of people should we be? We should be holy and godly. I love that expression, godly. I love the expression godliness. When I was a believer, as a young believer, uh, early on, one of my friends said, and I don't know why. It, you know, sometimes you just something sticks with you and you never forget it. But this was one of those. He said, you should spend some time with that guy because he is what? Fill in the blank. Godly. He did not say to me he's the holiest guy in the church. He said, you should go spend time with that guy because he's godly. Because his life, like it has the shape of Jesus. He talks and walks and acts and does. Man, he, you should go spend some time with him because he's godly. So that's the beautiful gospel balance between now and the return of Jesus. We want to pursue holiness and godliness. Waiting for and hastening the coming day of God. Because sure enough, justice is coming. It is coming. And you don't know when it's coming. So go back to verse 10 and we'll kind of tie things up in verse 10. The day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. The day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. The point here is that you just don't know. You don't know when he's coming. So we do affirm the, the, uh, what, what, what we call the imminent return of Christ, imminent with an I, so like it could happen any moment. The imminent return of Christ. We do affir I, I affirm that personally. I, I teach and believe that, and, and I do so because of places like this in verse 10 where the apostle Peter says, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. 
probably following Jesus in Matthew 24, because in Matthew 24, there's that segment um, in, the, in the Olivet Discourse where Jesus is teaching about his coming, and, and he talks about the judgment that's going to come, and he even uses the exact line, right? Uh, he will come like a thief in the night. The day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. So Peter's reiterating that. Concerning the day or the hour, no one knows. It will happen like a thief. When I was in high school, when we lived in Tampa, Florida, um, my mom and I went away for a weekend, and it was just my mom and I at this point. My sister, I think, was at college, and so we went away for the weekend, locked up the house just like you would do, and left, left town. When we came back, the brand new car that was locked in the garage was gone. And I mean, it was nice. New leather interior, and I'm not going to tell you the name brand because it was really nice. Gone. And jewelry and stuff in our house, our possessions were gone. It's just such a creepy feeling to know that, like, you have to sleep there that night. Somebody broke into your house. Somebody, maybe somebody knew we were going to be gone. They must have known we were going to be gone. And yeah, just there was. We had no idea. We had absolutely no idea it was coming. Like a thief in the night. He will come. He's not going to come and steal your stuff. That's the good news. He wants to steal your heart right now. Like Jesus wants to steal your heart right now so that you can be his and he can be yours. He doesn't want to steal your stuff, but he will come. And he's going to come and you're not going to know when. We are not going to know when, but it's going to happen. It's going to happen. So surely it's going to happen. So why would you not obey him today? Why would you not prepare yourself to be ready? Readiness is what is it. The thief in the night imagery is about readiness. It's about the certainty of his coming and it's about readiness. And what Jesus is doing is he's saying, make yourself ready, always be ready, always be ready. Like pursue holiness and godliness. Why would you wait? Why would you wait to pursue me? Why would you wait? I want to pray for us and ask you to consider yielding your life to Christ today. Maybe for the first time. Maybe there's something that you've been dealing with in disobedience or not dealing with in terms of holiness, godliness. Between now and then, what are we going to do? Lord Jesus, we pray right now that we would not live lives that would be afraid of exposure. Rather, we would expose ourselves before you in repentance and in confession, and then we would find that you beautifully and marvelously have covered us, covered our shame, covered our nakedness, covered our injustice, the wrongs we've committed a thousand times over. 
God, help us to look forward to your coming. We do feel the world is broken. We long for the day when you will come again and spread justice. We long to see justice flowing like rivers of righteousness. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's sing in response.